Last Sunday, we agreed, I, I hope, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest event in the history of our world, which is reason enough for celebrating Easter not for one day, but for seven weeks. And that's what we do in the church. And today is the third Sunday in the season of Easter. There are five more Sundays in Easter, and then we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Now, during this season of Easter and Pentecost, we're focusing our attention on the possibility of being a big church. Not big in size, but rather big in our impact. A church that is strong and mighty, for that's the original meaning of the word big in Middle English language. Our desire is that Elam would be strong and mighty in the accomplishment of our purposes. And our purpose, our reason for existing, as we saw from the first two chapters of Acts last week, is made possible only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we also saw last Sunday that the primary purpose of the church is to be a witness to the risen Lord and to his resurrection, and also to be living evidence of that fact in the way that we live, giving evidence to the world around us that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Now, if we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the greatest event in history, then the event that we're going to focus on this morning may well be in second place, at least in those parts of the world where the Christian faith has become firmly established. Europe, North America, South America, Africa, Australia, New Zealand. This is the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a story about, in fact, a, a radical and big transformation in a man's life. Now, what do we know about this man, Saul? He was an Hebraic Jew. You might think, well, isn't that the only kind? No, in those days there were also Hellenistic Jews who were fairly wedded to Greek culture and uh, weren't quite as uh, disciplined about practicing Judaism as some of the Hebraic Jews. Saul was Hebraic. He was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. He was named after the first king of Israel, Saul, who was also of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul's early life was spent in Tarsus, a, a city that still exists in the southern part of what we call Turkey, and he was a Roman citizen. And the book of Acts, he has two names, first Saul and then Paul, and we sometimes think that Paul was something that he added on later on in his life, but probably not. Uh, many Jews in the diaspora who were scattered had two names. They had their Hebrew name, and then they had a Gentile name. His was Paul. And it may even be a bit of a transliteration of the Hebrew Saul. He took the name on himself, apparently, according to Luke, not until his first missionary journey. It seems at that time he thought, well, if I'm going to minister to the Gentiles, I should use my Gentile name. And from that time on, primarily in the book of Acts, he's known as Paul. Let's pick up his story. Acts chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 1 and 2, page 837 in our Bible, Pew Bible. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any follower of the way he found there 
He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. This is the first time we meet Saul. We meet him first in, in Acts on the day when Stephen, a deacon in the young church, was killed by an angry crowd, the first of many martyrs in the history of the church that we know of, and certainly a list that is growing week by week in our world. Saul witnessed the death of Stephen, but he apparently threw no stones, for we we read in Acts chapter 7, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. In chapter 8, we see Saul leading the effort to destroy the young Christian church, going about his job with great passion and zeal. Verse 3 of chapter 8, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now it appears from the story that that Saul learned that some of the Christians in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, in order to escape what he was doing, moved to Damascus. So we see him making preparations with the high priest to go to Damascus and arrest those Christians who had moved there to escape what was happening in Jerusalem. However, Jesus stops Saul before he can enter the city. And this divine encounter with Christ begins a radical transformation in the life of this young, zealous Pharisee. He goes from being wholly dedicated to the destruction of Christianity to becoming one of its greatest champions. Now, the story is so well known in Western culture that it's not been uncommon to refer to a dramatic change in someone's life as a Damascus Road experience. But why would we be tempted to rank this event as second only to the resurrection of Jesus? Well, consider these facts. Saul, or Paul, as we know him, personally took the gospel to Asia Minor, which is now Turkey and and that part of the world, to Greece and to Rome. He spoke to governors, leaders, emperors. They all heard his story as he bore witness to the fact that Christ is risen from the dead is alive, and is Lord. The second fact is that he's the dominant figure in the book of Acts. The story of his conversion is told three separate times in the book, once as Luke records it and twice as Paul tells the story to others. It makes up roughly 8% of the book of Acts. Fully 60% of the book of Acts is given to Paul's missionary activity. Third fact I'd like you to consider is that 13 of the 27 books of the Bible are attributed to Paul. Almost half the books of the New Testament, I'm sorry, did I say Bible? New Testament. Half the books of the New Testament are by Paul. Where would we be without this Damascus Road experience? Now, Paul's role in the spread and the establishment of the church was pivotal. So let's look more at the transformation of his life here in chapter 9. His transformation began with his trip to Damascus. It's an ancient city. Those who are familiar with the Old Testament recognize it as the capital of Syria. It has a long history until it was finally defeated by the Assyrians and then a bunch of other people took it. Finally, Rome owns it at this point in time when this is written. His agenda in Damascus was very simple, to arrest any Jewish Christians who had relocated there in order to escape, and he was determined to capture those people, return them to Jerusalem. It was his plan, but it was much more than a plan. 
It was his personal vendetta. It was his obsession. He acknowledged this years later when he appeared appeared before Agrippa and Festus and told his story. He said, Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem with authority received from the chief priest. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. If I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities, which is the story we see today. Furiously enraged. The destruction of the church was his passionate obsession. And Saul did all he could do to force people to renounce their faith. And if they refused, he was glad to see them executed. He was convinced he was doing the right thing, doing what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would want him to do. One contemporary writer says, Among the church's persecutors, Saul was singular in his zeal, unabashed in his purpose. He saw no reason to be diplomatic or cautious about it. He was willing to take risks even if he was perceived to be a radical. Saul was a man with a mission. From Saul's point of view, Jesus claimed to be God, which was blasphemy. And for that, he deserved to die. And from his point of view, those who followed Jesus were thus blasphemers and deserved to die. For Saul, the devout Jew, his rage was both justified and righteous. So in his rage, he started his journey to Damascus. It would be a distance of roughly 250 kilometers, winding around. Uh, It would probably take maybe two weeks by foot. We often in art see him depicted riding a horse. Not sure that that's likely, but even if he was riding a horse, he wouldn't have traveled any faster than those on foot. So it was about a two-week journey. Just before arriving at the gates of the city, he had this encounter that radically changed and transformed his life. Let's read the story starting in verse 3, chapter 9. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He's thrown to the ground in a flash of light and a disembodied voice calling out his name. Both are too great to be of this world. So he calls out in a respectful tone, Who are you, Lord? He has no idea at this point, probably. But the voice responded, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Jesus then issues a simple order to Saul. He was lying on the ground, unable to see. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Great economy of words, wouldn't you say? Get up, get into town, wait. You will be told what to do. Now we pick that up in verse 7. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. 
So his companions led him by hand to, to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. There's some irony here, some beautiful biblical irony. He couldn't see people. He couldn't see objects. He couldn't see a cup of water in front of him. He was blind, and eating and drinking probably just had no interest for him. He was locked in a prison of darkness, and there was little to do but think. And we wonder if he didn't begin to realize that for a very long time he's been blind, not just today. This whole time he's been, been blind to the truth of who Jesus is. Because outside of Damascus, he had met Jesus, which means that he had been wrong. Dead men don't talk. Jesus was alive. The resurrection must be fact, not fiction. And that would mean that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that would mean that though his intentions had been good, that he had been completely wrong in his actions. He had been rejecting the divine Son of God. And he had caused suffering and death for many who he suddenly realized were more godly than him. It's a difficult three days. In a single encounter with Jesus, his world had been turned upside down. And those three days marked the beginning of a radical transformation in his life. One that began with obedience. Enters the city to wait for instructions. Saul has begun to take orders from Jesus. And in some ways, that's the best place to begin a relationship with him. Now the story shifts to another person. In Damascus, there's a Jewish Christian by the name of Ananias. As we read in verse 10, simply says the facts. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. In art, he's often depicted as an older man, but the Bible tells us absolutely nothing about him. We have no idea what his age was, his status in society, his occupation. We're only told one thing about Ananias. The important thing. He was a believer. As if this is the only thing we need to know about him. He was like us, a follower of the way. The one who told us that he is the way, the truth, the life. Jesus also spoke to Ananias, and he said, Ananias, and Ananias said, yes, Lord. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. Straight Street was well named. It's a street that ran from one side of the city to the other in a straight line. It's still there. You can visit. Some of you may have even been on Straight Street in Damascus. I don't know. This is how it looks now with cars and people. The voice of Jesus continues. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. I don't really think Saul was a man that Ananias wanted to meet. He knew Saul's plans, and he fears Saul. Saul could be the end of his life as he's known it. You know, I wouldn't blame him for a minute if he didn't really like Saul at all. Saul was an enemy. I can even imagine Ananias being a, dis a bit disappointed 
that Jesus didn't just strike him dead on the road to Damascus. Be done with him. Wouldn't you have thought that maybe if you were Ananias? Well, I would. I'll confess that. And he replies to Jesus, putting his feelings on the table. But Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon his name. But Jesus said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God makes two surprising statements about Saul. First, he's God's chosen instrument. That's an odd choice. He's chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. To those who had been his victims, that had to be more shocking than surprising. Second, this new mission is going to cost Saul a great deal. He's going to suffer many things for the sake of Jesus. We have glimpses in his letters and in the book of Acts of exactly how much he did suffer. Writing about 90 AD, Clement of Rome said, After that he had been seven times in bonds, had been driven into exile, stoned, had preached in the east and in the west, he won the noble renown which was the reward of his faith, having taught righteousness under the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the west. And when he had borne his testimony before rulers, so he departed from the world and went unto the holy place, having been found a notable pattern of patient endurance. Well, the New Testament doesn't tell us how Saul departed this world, or Paul. We know he was in prison for two years in Rome. The tradition is that he was beheaded in the last years of Nero's reign. And Clement seems to suggest that that actually happened. The sword that's portrayed often, as we've noted in, in works of art that show Paul, have him, the sword in those works of art represent the way he died, his head cut off with a sword. And this is a statue of Paul outside a church in Rome. The tradition is that, like Stephen, Paul died as a martyr. What is a martyr? Somebody who dies? No. The word means a witness. Martyrs are those who witness to the risen Christ in their death, in their dying. Paul in his life and in his death bore witness to the resurrected Christ. Now the story ends with Paul wasting no time at all. He just got to work. Acts 9, verses 17 to 20. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food, regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching in the synagogue, saying, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Let's consider briefly a few what-ifs. What if Saul had said no to God? What if Ananias had refused to go and pray for Saul? Does that mean that the church would not have begun its spread across the Roman world? 
No, I don't think so. God would have appointed somebody else. And Paul wasn't the only one taking the gospel to the corners of the world. Already the church was moving into Africa and into Asia as far as India. So who are the main characters in this story that we've read this morning? Well, the first is the resurrected Jesus. He's truly the main figure in the whole book of Acts. Even though he's not there, he's enthroned in heaven where we see him in our minds and we sing of him in our worship. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified as we look at the wounds on his hands and on his feet. But Paul's a key figure in the story as well. And then there's Ananias. Don't know anything about him before this visit. We know nothing about him afterward. He disappears. I think for us, he's the most important figure in this story because he's the one who's like us. He's just like us. He's easier for us to identify with than Paul. He's a small person in a large story, like us. He shows up, he does his job, and he disappears, like us. He's there by God's choosing and by virtue of the fact that he was responsive and obedient to the voice of Jesus, like we try to be. In Ananias, we see the courage to obey, the courage to show up, the courage to embrace Saul as brother with two powerful words that must have shaken Paul. He must have wept as Ananias said, Brother Saul. With those two words, he embraces Saul as a fellow believer, no longer an enemy. In many ways, this is a story of radical transformation on the road to Damascus, but it's also a story about trust as much as about transformation. It makes sense because trust is an essential ingredient of transformation. Trust is essential to transformation. Both Saul and Ananias need to trust the voice and word of Jesus. Otherwise, nothing big happens. Saul, in trust, must enter Damascus and wait in the dark. Ananias must trust that Saul will not treat him as he's been treating other Christians for months. Instead, he must trust the work that Jesus is doing in Saul's heart. It wasn't easy, though, was it? Could you have walked in there and said, Brother Saul, and laid your hands on him and prayed for him? It couldn't have been easy. We may be tempted to think that Ananias was a better man than we, but was he? The book of Acts just says there was a believer in Damascus. We're no more than Ananias, but we're no less, I hope. We are believers in Jesus, made available to him for his service, trying to learn to walk in trust. We sometimes find ourselves in a similar situation as Ananias. Some rough character shows up in our lives. Character's got a story. We're not sure we trust the story, but we do know that something inside of us is afraid of this character. Makes us nervous. We wonder, Lord, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to say? 
We hear the story again, but it, I'm not sure that it's a trustworthy story. We suddenly face the possibility of having to take a risk. Maybe we're afraid of being hurt. Maybe we're afraid of not saying or not doing the right thing. So what are we to do? We do what Ananias did. He trusted Jesus, and he took a risk. Last night I was privileged to hear a a talk by the vicar of Baghdad, Canon Andrew White, uh, who, because of his health now and because of the situation in in the Middle East, doesn't get into Baghdad very often, but has had a remarkable ministry there. And he told us last night that whenever he would be heading for Baghdad, his parishioners in, in London and his friends in England would say, Oh, Canon, Canon White, please take care. He said everybody was afraid of what was going to happen to him. And he was too, a little bit maybe, but he would respond to them and say, No, no. Take risk for God. Take risk for God. To do that, we need to trust Jesus and depend on him. Just like Ananias. Many years ago, there was a Moody, Dwight Moody evangelistic meeting. I don't know where. And there was a time for testimonies, and a young man stood up who was just new in the faith to give his own statement of testimony. And he said, I'm, I, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. But I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. We often live in that place of not being sure. There's so much we can't see. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't understand. And we say, I'm not sure. But that's when we need to take that second line and say, but I will trust and obey. Those words spoken by that man that night so impressed the song leader that he took, took them and wrote them down on a piece of paper, sent them to a Presbyterian clergyman friend who made it into a hymn. And we're going to close with that hymn, Trust and Obey. And as we sing it, I invite you to be encouraged that as you trust and obey Jesus, that your life will become part of a great or a big transformation. Your life will be transformed and you will likely be used in the transformation of other people because we trust and obey.